Well, there's a number of things we all hate to do. I know that when it comes to this time, I hate to set my clock forward, knowing I'm going to lose an extra hour of sleep. I know for many of us, one of the biggest fears is doing what you're seeing me doing this morning, is to stand up before a crowd and to speak. Some of us, we hate to go to the doctor, we hate to go to the dentist, we hate to go to to get a shot, a flu shot, whatever it might be. Uh, We would hate to go before the IRS to get an audit of our taxes. None of those are fun things. None of us like to do that. But something that most of us really, really hate to do is to have confrontations and to deal with conflicts that occur in difficult situations relating to relationships. When you think of confrontation, you think of conflict. The image that might come to your mind is when Jesus talked about the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's just something you would rather avoid. Maybe some of you are at a restaurant and you get your food brought to you and you're eating the food, it doesn't taste really good, it's subpar, but you'd rather just go on and eat it rather than complain to the waiter or the waitress or the manager about it because you want to avoid conflict. But when you're in the book of Proverbs and you go through each page, nearly every page It gives practical guidance and wisdom on how to deal with the tough stuff that occurs in relationships, especially when there is relational breakdown. And the fact is, is that if you have a close relationship with anybody, a friend, especially in marriage, in ministry, a co-worker, a business partner, somebody at your uh, child's little league game and you're a fellow coach or whatever it may be, you're going to experience some relational breakdown. In fact, the nature of the breakdown becomes the worst, not by the bigness or the size of the offense, but rather the closeness of the relationship. I could give somebody or loan somebody that I don't know very well a hundred dollars, and if they don't pay me back, yeah, that's bad and I'm offended. But if I have somebody that I'm much closer to, a, a good friend or a family member or somebody trusts, and I loan them much less and they don't pay me back, the offense is greater, not because They didn't return the money, which was a smaller amount, but because of the closeness and the trust of the relationship. And Jesus told us that we're going to have relational troubles, and that's why he says to forgive 70 times 7. Now, I'm not real good at math, but that's quite a lot of forgiveness, isn't it? And if you're in a marriage, you've forgiven at least that much, probably in the first week of your marriage, okay? And we're going to have troubles, we're going to have conflicts, it's going to happen, we're going to have to deal with that. And maybe a friend that you're close to, you're very tight, maybe for several years. But conflicts, misunderstanding, disagreements, hurts occurred, and now you're shocked that you all hardly speak to each other. And you wonder what happened, why did this occur? Maybe it's a nasty job situation. And maybe you're a manager, you had to fire somebody, or maybe you got fired, or maybe nobody got fired, but there's still this kind of tension, and now you're avoiding whoever, and you're not really talking, and there's this tension at the job. 
people leave a church. They leave a church because somebody, something, a group of people hurt them. And they go and they look for another church. And they say, oh, I love this church. Now the people are so loving and wonderful here. But you're saying that because you've not really gotten to know them yet. And once you get to know them, you're going to realize they're people too with with problems. And the hallmark of the gospel and what Jesus came to do when he went to the cross was to reconcile relationships. When he went to the cross, he bore the penalty of sin so that relationships with ourselves to God could be repaired but also that our relationships with each other as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ could be repaired as well. And there's some practical guidance that the Bible gives to us, and we're going to talk about repairing relationships. So here's what we're going to look at. I'm going to go ahead and give you the blanks, okay? Right fast. React slowly, resist superiority, release liability, respond graciously. And number five is... Right fast. No, number five, that's not really there. Let's begin. All the scriptures are going to be on the back of your handout where you've got the notes. So you can turn back to those and follow along because we're going to be bouncing all over the place, okay? In the book of Proverbs. Principle number one in relational repair is this. This is the biggest one. This is the most important one. If you don't get this down, then all of the others aren't going to matter. And here it is. React slowly. React slowly. Proverbs 15 verse 28 says that the heart of the righteous weighs its answers. The heat is turned up, the conflict's going on, the emotions are rising, the tension can be cut with a knife, and the heart of the righteous person in the midst of that weighs what they're going to say. They're slow, they're deliberate. Sometimes I'm in a tense situation, and I realize that the nature or the specificity of the words that I use are going to make all of the difference in whether we're going to facilitate forward movement or we're going to create more misunderstanding. And sometimes somebody will say to me, Pastor Anthony, just go and tell me what you're thinking. Go on and spit it out. I'm not going to do that. Because the words that I'm going to use in the moment of that tension or that conflict are going to make all the difference in the world, whether we have forward movement in the relationship or we step back three or four or more steps. But notice this. The righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. If you are wicked, if you are evil, if you are self-centered and you are in conflict, you just let your emotions hang out. You let the very first thoughts that come to your mind just pour out despite what your words might do to the person that hears those words. You shake up a can of soda, a bottle of pop, whatever you want to call it, 
and you shake it up or maybe it's been shaken and you open it and what happens? It just gushes the liquid out, doesn't it? And when you and I are in relational conflict and the relationship has been shaken up and feelings are being tossed about, at the moment that we start to speak, all of our thoughts and emotions and exaggerations begin to gush out, don't they? And that is where conflict becomes worse. That's where breakdown relationally takes place on a much larger scale. You've heard people say they really push my buttons. You're on a computer, control all delete, at least on a PC, and it just kind of removes the screen or restarts your computer. It doesn't think about it. It doesn't ponder it. It just does it. Once you press the button, there's no, there's no in-between thought or processing. It just does it. We use the term today a lot, triggered. I was triggered, or you triggered them. You pull the trigger, there's an explosion in the gun, and out shoots the bullet. And there's no thinking, there's no processing, there's no pondering, there's no way. And the Bible says that between the time when somebody says something offensive to you and when you respond, there should be a deliberate delay There should be a pondering, there should be a thoughtfulness in your response so that you are responding to them rather than reacting, responding in righteousness rather than reacting out of emotion. Let me give you three reasons why this is very helpful when you react, respond slowly. Number one, you create some emotional distance. You create some emotional distance. Do you realize that some things look different with time and some distance put in between them? My favorite world historical figure is Abraham Lincoln. I love to read about his life. I love him as a man of character, a man of leadership. And one of the rules that he had was the 24-hour rule. And that when somebody said something or did something that deeply angered him, he would ponder it, he would think about it, he would not respond for 24 hours so that he could get a little bit of distance, get a little bit of perspective. Somebody has said something, they've bothered you, they've upset you, they've hurt you, and you're ready to nail them, you're ready to send that email, you're ready to shoot off that text. The righteous person doesn't do that. Rather, maybe they go, they go to their email and they write down their thoughts. And all of the anger and all of the ugliness and all of the disappointment, but they don't shoot that baby off. They wait for 24 hours. And then you get up the next day and you think about it and you look through that email and you look at it and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I didn't send that yesterday. I'm seeing things a little bit different now. Now that I've talked to a friend about this, now that I've prayed about this, now that I've been in the scripture about this, you look at that text that you're going to send and the next day you're like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't do that. And you know it's a real bad feeling. You sent it. You sent that email. You sent that text. You responded out of the emotion. And then the next day you're like, oh, why did I do that? 
Boy, I've got a lot of trouble to deal with now. I've got to backtrack, apologize, and explain. And oftentimes the person is not going to hear it. And by the way, can I give you just a little bit of guidance here? When it comes to emotional and difficult communication of any sort, I do not advise you use digital formats, okay? I do not advise you to use an email or a text or anything like that. Rather, if you need to have a difficult conversation with somebody, at least be voice-to-voice on the phone or face-to-face because all of the misinterpretations that happen, and I have seen this over and over and over because a conflict or an argument occurs through texting or emails or whatever it may be. Sometimes you've got to stretch a conversation out. Because in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the heat of things going on, we have all kinds of exaggerations. And so you need to be slow with the conversation and not try to figure it all out at once, but kind of break it up in different different parts. Brenda and I, conflict, we simply took one phrase and just talked about it for one day. Conversation lasted for three years. Not really. But the point is, is sometimes you just got to stretch things out, get some perspective. Number two, when you have time, when you weigh your answers, it gives you time to see from the other person's perspective. And this is big. You're talking to your wife, guys, husbands. And she says, oh, I'm hurt by this. I'm hurt. I'm so disappointed. I'm so sad. And because of this, and guys, what you don't want to do at that time, if you've got any experience in marriage, is to say, well, that's silly that you feel that way. That is irrational. That is illogical. Let me tell you why. No, don't Don't do that. What you want to do is kind of weigh through. You might want to think and think from your wife's perspective and be able to come to the place of saying, is this why you're disappointed? Is this why you're hurt? Is this why you're upset? And get to the point where you're validating. Maybe you don't agree. Maybe you don't like, but understand it from her perspective. And understand this when it comes to conflict and all these relational problems. You're not going to get anywhere until you understand what the other person is going through, especially if you're in a place of leadership. I find in those relational issues, those tough times, those issues where you've got to deal with some tough, difficult conversations, the very first thing you need to do is to be able to look at the other person and say, hey, you know what? Is this what you're thinking? Is this what you're going through? And they need to be able to look at you and say, yeah, that is it. That's what's going on. And until you get to that, you're just going to build misunderstanding upon misunderstanding. Look at Proverbs 18, verse 13. Solomon writes this. He says, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. He's basically saying that if you listen so that you can reply rather than listen so that you can understand, then that is foolishness. And everybody in our world today, they're always talking, they're always communicating, but nobody's listening. Got a major in college, it's called a communications degree, don't we? 
But is there a listening degree? Not exactly. And everybody's talking, but nobody's listening. And the book of Proverbs is saying, listen in order to understand. Thirdly, distance gives you the opportunity to see, guess what? Your contribution. Your contribution to the problem. If I'm working on something and I'm hitting a, trying to hit the nail into the wood or whatever, and I hit my finger and it hurts like crazy, I don't call 911 and get attorneys involved. They're not going to get involved because they're going to say, hey, that's what you did to yourself. And that's a big thing when we're in a conflict and there's problems going on. We need a little distance. Say, you know, what is my contribution? And instead of looking at others through binoculars, look at yourself through the mirror and say, here's what I did. Here's what I need to take responsibility for. Here's what I need to repent of. So that's the first one is to respond slowly. Secondly, resist superiority. Resist superiority. Proverbs 19.11 says that a person of discretion is not easily angered. He gains respect by overlooking offense. He gains respect by overlooking an offense. Why is the ability to overlook an offense something that is going to gain you and something that's going to gain me respect? One of the core principles of the book of Proverbs is that when you understand that you have a natural inclination to foolishness and to evil, that you have the fear of God, that is when you begin to first start to walk in wisdom. When you begin to think about yourself and you think that I am naturally wise, that I'm naturally good, that I naturally do all the right things, that I'm naturally, that I've got an edge on everybody else around me, the Bible says you are a fool. But when you look at your life and you say, I've got a natural inclination towards evil, towards foolishness, towards wrong, and because of that you guard your life in the fear of God, then you are on the path of wisdom. Amen? And we overlook offenses because we realize we're made of the same stuff as the people who offend us. Proverbs 14.29 says, If you stay calm, you are wise, but if you have a hot temper, you only show how stupid you are. Proverbs 29 verse 11, Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. We as human beings, born in sin, needing forgiveness, we have this natural insecurity. We all do. And because of that, we want to justify ourselves. We want to prove that we're all right. We want to prove that we're good in relation to other people. And so we're trying to find our place in the world. We're trying to find what makes us who we are. And we're looking for justification and validation. And there is a deep insecurity within all of us. And when conflict or offenses occur, that sense of self-validation and self-justification kicks into hyperdrive. And that's when we begin protecting ourselves and attacking others. 
because our insecurities and our validation is at stake. And so if I'm working with somebody and they're offended and they're hurt, somebody has disappointed them and they're just bleeding inside, the first question I need to ask if you're a follower of Jesus is where are you at before God? Is your conscience good before God? Does God affirm you and does God love you and has God called you to do your ministry or to be the parent you are or all of this kind of stuff where you're feeling insecurity? Then if God affirms you, then establish your identity there. Release the hurts, release the offenses, release the disappointments. And when persons affirm their security in the Lord, they then can love the person who's offended them or at least not be controlled and manipulated by the offenses because their identity is in Jesus Christ. In their book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, social psychologists Carol Travis and Elliot Aronson describe how a fixation on our own righteousness can choke the life out of love. And they relate this in the context of marriage. They write this, The vast majority of couples who drift apart do so slowly, over time, in a snowballing pattern of blame and self-justification. Each partner focuses on what the other one is doing wrong while justifying his or her own preferences, attitudes, and ways of doing things. From our standpoint, therefore, they say misunderstandings, conflicts, personality differences, and even angry quarrels are not the assassins of love, but self-justification is. So we think to ourselves, you know, I would never do that. What they did to me, I would never do that. I am not that kind of a person. I am better than them. But then when we find ourselves or we're confronted that we in fact did the same thing, we're like, wait a minute, for me it's more complex. Wait a minute, my situation is different because here's why I did it. Therefore, it's not as bad. And we justify it. Here's a principle that I've learned that's been helpful to me. And when it comes to conflict, and it is this, first sinner, second sinned against. When you are in conflict, remember that first of all, you are a sinner who is forgiven. Secondly, remember that you are a sinner who has been sinned against. And so if you have been slighted and somebody has spoken to you in a way that they shouldn't, the first thing I need to realize is that was wrong. I don't like it. I'm not going to say that's okay. But you know what? I've done that against God. I have slighted him and I've spoken against him and he's forgiven me. And I need to realize that I'm first a sinner. Secondly, I've been sinned against. If somebody's not given me the respect that I'm due or they've overlooked me or they've not repaid me what I'm owed, yeah, that's not good. I don't like it and I'm not going to justify it. But I'm going to realize that first I'm a sinner because I have not given God the due that is owed to him, the respect. And I have overlooked God so many times and he has forgiven me. And so first I'm a sinner. Secondly, I'm sinned against. And when you do that, it begins to put the situation into perspective so that our anger is not fueled by self-righteousness. Number three, how many are enjoying this sermon? Release liability. 
release liability. Proverbs 17, 9, whoever would foster love covers over an offense. Whoever would foster love covers over an offense. Folks, do you know that an offense is an event? An offense is an event. Look what it goes on to say. But whoever (laughs) repeats the matter separates close friends. Whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. An offense is an event. That is something that occurred. You're offended. That happens. But to continue to be offended, to continue to repeat, to dwell on an issue, that is a choice and that is a decision. Offense is an event. To be offended is a continued choice. And a person who truly loves and handles conflict learns to release reliability. Perhaps it's a ministry event, food truck, whatever, children's church, and you were overlooked, your view was not considered, people didn't ask your opinion, or you made a contribution and people didn't acknowledge it, or somehow you were not contacted or whatever, and you're offended by that. But then the ministry event, the children's church, the food truck, the whatever it is, it turned out well. God was glorified. People were blessed. Missions were mobilized even though you were offended. And so at that point, you have a choice. Will that offense be an event or will it continue to be a choice? Will you release it or will you hold on to it? What's most important to you that you were acknowledged, that you were pointed out as important or that God's mission was accomplished within his church. Remember Paul, he was in the Philippi, he was in jail, wrote to the Philippians. And he says, now that I'm in jail, there's all kinds of people that are going to the churches that I've started and out of their ambition, they're preaching the gospel and they're trying to turn people away from me because I can't be there to defend myself and to lead these churches. And so people are now trying to capitalize on the gospel. And Paul says, however, the work of God is continuing and the gospel is being proclaimed. And therefore in this, I rejoice. And rather than continuing to be offended and upset at what people were doing to him, he released the offense because the mission of God was still continuing and going on by the grace of God. And folks, we need to learn to see the the bigger picture. What does it mean to cover? What does it mean to cover? And sometimes we look at that, that love covers over an offense. Does it mean that you just kind of ignore You just pass it by. It's no big deal. I'll gloss over it while you continue to hurt and and, and walk all over me. No, the word cover there, kind of think you're out with lunch or you're out with a dinner with some friends. Then at the end of the meal, you say, you know what, I'll cover that. I'll pay the cost for that. You're not saying, you know, well, we're just going to pretend you didn't eat it and we're just going to walk out without paying the bill. No, when you cover it, it means you absorb the cost. I will pay for that. I will bury that. And the word there, cover, means to absorb the cost. And when you cover over an offense, it means that you absorb it so that you can let it go. 
so that it doesn't have to continue to go on in your family, in your friendships, in the church. You're just going to let it go and not make a big deal of it anymore. But here's the second line. To remain offended, the second line is that whoever repeats a matter separates close friends. And so when you don't let it go, do you know what you do? You keep bringing it up, bringing it up, bringing it up, because somebody's got to pay, don't they? And so to the person who's offended you, what do you do? You keep repeating it to them. Even 15 years after it's happened, it still comes up in the heat of a conflict. Do you remember when you did this to me? Proverbs 12.18 says, Some chatter on like a stabbing sword, but a wise tongue heals. And so they keep using it as a sword to wound, to hurt, to stab. Some of you, you're not like that. You don't keep bringing that verbal. You're more passive. So what do you do? You give the cold shoulder. You give the passive treatment. And so instead of bringing it up, you just avoid. And so therefore, you've been hurt, you've been offended. And how you remind the other person that you're hurt and you're offended is that you stop talking to them. You don't talk. You don't help them anymore. You withhold ideas. You quit coming to the meetings because you've been offended and somebody needs to pay. Then there's another way, kind of a subtle, self-righteous way we have of doing that. We spread it to others. Sometimes we've been hurt or offended and we go to our Bible study, our small group, our friends. We say, I need you to pray for me. I'm trying to forgive somebody. Now, if you said that and said, pray for me, I need to forgive somebody, that's awesome. You've got a righteous heart. You've got a motivation that says, I really want to release this offense. But when you go on in that meeting or in that encounter with your small group or your friends or whatever, and you say, here's what I need to forgive. Here's what they did to me. And you go through all of the details. Folks, you're using prayer and you're using the word of God and you're weaponizing scripture against somebody. And Paul, or rather, rather Solomon says, release this liability. Because an offense is an event, but to continue to be offended is a decision. Number four, respond graciously. Respond graciously. Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 and 22, Paul, uh, Solomon rather says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now I can hear some of you right now. Where are those burning coals? I'd like to purchase some of those. Some of you are like, oh, well, can I skip all the other stuff about feeding my, you know, my enemy and giving him water when he's thirsty? Can we just get to the burning coals part, Okay. And here's what Solomon is saying, and this is an expression that when they heap burning coals, it's kind of like when we say slapping somebody upside of the head. 
It's basically awakening them up, making them aware of what they're doing wrong. And that when we respond in grace and kindness to somebody who is being a jerk to us, and we continue to love them and are gracious to them, it's like we slap them upside of the head and they become more alert and aware in their conscience of what they are doing wrong. And folks, we have a much greater chance of changing somebody, of influencing them when we respond in love rather than when we respond in emotion and rage. Let me tell you a little bit of an interesting story that was kind of a psychological event that shows me how this works, at least in some form or fashion. It's probably about four or five years ago, I was in Flushing, which is just north of Flint, and I was visiting somebody in a facility. And as I pulled into the parking lot, to my left, two young guys in their early 20s, they pull in, and the car they in was, was, was kind of like a, like a beater, you know. And, and I'm sitting there, and I'm getting ready to do this visit, and I look out of the window, and there's these two guys, and they're looking over at me, and they're staring at me. And so I just kind of wave at them. Hi, hey, how you doing? Didn't think anything of it. And then the one guy rose down his window like he wants to talk to me. And so, oh, he wants to talk to me. And so I rolled down my window. Hey, what's up? And he looks at me and he says, hey, man, what's the problem? And I mean, I'm oblivious. I'm Mr. Magoo at this time. And I'm like, well, I'm looking at their car. It's like kind of this beater, you know, and it's loud. They still have it running. And I'm like, man, I'm not the best at vehicles. I'm not really a mechanic, but I think it's something with your exhaust. And they look at each other and they don't know what to think. And so I think nothing of it. I say, I hope that helps, but I've had that similar sound in my muffler too. So maybe that's what you need to get looked at. I get out of the car and then those two guys get out as well. And they look at me and they come to talk to me and they say, no, ma'am, what's the problem? I said, I don't know. He says, we're talking about back there. I said, I don't know. I just got a coffee at McDonald's. It isn't that good. And they're looking at each other and they're shaking their heads and they get back into their car and they leave. And then it just dawns upon me, they wanted to fight me. They were ready to take me on, and I was completely oblivious to it because something I did in terms of my driving had upset them back at some place previously. And I think to myself, you know what, if I wouldn't have been oblivious, if I wouldn't have been ignorant, if my defenses would have been up, if I would have responded to them in some defensiveness or some type of attention, probably the outcome of that situation would have been very different, wouldn't it? And this is the wisdom of Proverbs, that when we respond to people who hate us, who are antagonistic, and we don't do so in the same manner that they're responding to us, it makes a world of difference in terms of the outcome. Well, I want to invite our worship team and our prayer team to come forward this morning. And when we think about Jesus Christ, and we think about Him going to the cross, Folks, here's the gospel secret. 
that if we want people to change, we help them to change not through yelling at them, not through berating them, not through being sarcastic to them, but by giving them the grace that Jesus has given to us. And folks, if I want to see people change and if I want to see them be influenced in a positive way, I don't want to go head to head with them in a battle. I've never had anybody say, you know, Pastor Anthony, I'm really starting to, to really change and see the light because you've raised your voice at me. Thank you for doing that. You know, I'm really because you are just using all kinds of sarcasm and your logic is so sparkling clear and your arguments are so awesome. I am really seeing the errors of my ways. I've yet to see anybody do that. But rather when I listen and I pray and I respond with understanding of love, we tend to see the defenses come down and we tend to see hearts soften.